0: ready
1: I got a pocket full of quarters and I'm headed to the arcade
0: bringing back memories on the night I lost my virginity <laughs> a little Patrick you know who sings this song do you remember
1: uh I do not know I don't know
0: <laughs> there was a whole album out about video game songs remember that Years and years ago.
1: Yeah. Is this... I I can't imagine who this possibly is. Ray Parker. I don't even Uh, know.
0: Buckner and Garcia. Oh, Oh, come on. Singing Pac-Man fever, which is... Very fitting for our podcast today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Gentleman's Gentleman's Dojo. I'm Gary Cannon, along with Patrick Keene, and we are back for another episode, episode number 132 of the Gentleman's Dojo here on the All Things Comedy Network, and we are excited because we are flashing back to our childhood. And we are excited about the guests on our show today.
1: That's right. We have John Paul Dyson and Jeremy, Jeremy Saucier, the authors of this incredible book, A History of Video Games in 64 Objects.
0: This is a an amazing, amazing book. And normally we start out the show with our Karate Kid theme because it is the dojo, but we decided to mix it up to a little... Buckner and Garcia with Pac-Man Fever. That's
1: right. T- same time period, Gary. I mean, it's uh, when, Absolutely. When, when Ralph Macchio made the move from Jersey to uh, Reseda. Oh, that's right.
0: That that's was right. right around
1: the time these video games were launched. Uh, you know, a little bit after, but kind of right at the peak.
0: I think our authors are on the phone with us. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, hello. Hi, is this Gary? Yeah, this is Gary. And uh, we have Patrick here. We host this amazing show called The Gentleman's Dojo. <laughs> we are out here in California, and we uh, understand that you guys are in New York. Um, and we are here with uh, we have John and j or we have uh, John and Jeremy on the phone, right?
2: Yeah, have yep. John Paul and Jeremy. Yeah, I usually go by JP.
0: Oh nice. Uh, hey, Jeremy, we were trying to figure out how to pronounce your last name. Is it saucier?
3: Yeah, you can't you can't pronounce it wrong. you're the right on saucier <laughs> and, Perfect. and
0: and and and, and J p. dyson, uh both. PhDs, I got to tell you, we are uh, excited to have some intellectual guests on our show today. Finally, yeah. Sometimes we get porn stars, but this time (laughs) we're doing some very highbrow guesting. This is great.
2: Well, well, you're assuming there's a direct relationship between the degree and intelligence. Oh, I see. Which is
3: (laughs) not the case.
2: It may not be the case in our in our situation as well. So we'll leave that.
0: Well, you got figure that out. I gotta tell you, boys. First of all, thank you guys for calling in. This is uh, just incredible for us because f- we are huge video game addicts, and we both grew up. Patrick and I both grew up in the '80s. Uh, you know, where video games were just exploding. And I was just telling Patrick before we got on the air. I'm 47 years old, and before uh, Patrick and I got on the air, I was just telling Patrick a few years ago I purchased a full size stand up arcade game. Donkey Kong. Now, I purchased it, and it also has the chip in it, which allows me to play Pac-Man, Burger Time, Centipede Millipede. And I got to tell you, this thing (laughs) has changed my life. It is absolutely amazing. So uh, only you guys can realize how important. My wife thinks it's garbage, but only you guys can appreciate how amazing this machine
1: is.
2: Yeah, it really is incredible. And we see that at the museum all the time with – we have a full-functioning arcade here. We have more than 300 uh, arcade and pinball games here. And guests just go crazy, and adults love it because not only are they taking back their childhood, but it's some of the few games they can actually beat their kids at when they play <laughs> them. So <laughs> they can good. school them on Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or something like that, And even if they're helpless when it comes to Fortnite or something like that. It's interesting.
3: There's yeah, a... I'm... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, this this is Jeremy. I was, I was just going to say, and and, and Donkey Kong is uh, at least one of the games where you might have a chance where you know your 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 child may actually know who Donkey Kong is, as uh, you know, uh, which which wouldn't be the case in Burger Time, you know, oh, yeah. or or one of these other games. So it's uh, it gives you more fun in that kind of intergenerational play.
0: You know, it's interesting because there's a bar here in Los Angeles called The One-Up. I'm sure there's many bars very similar to this across the country. And they have tons of video games that you can play. And when I first moved to L.A., it's like, hey, you can go to this place called The One-Up, this bar – and you can play all these video games for free. But what they don't tell you is that you have to order a beer and the beers are $18. So it offsets the cost of the fact that the games, you'd be better off buying a video, a full-size arcade game. Um, gentlemen, how did I? from what we understood, from what Patrick and I understood, first of all, this book, just looking at it, just holding it and, and, and just the, the design of it, it's absolutely beautiful. The book itself, aesthetically, is absolutely amazing.
2: Thank you. You know, we uh, we obviously worked with the publisher and we hired an amazing photographer to, to help with it. But a lot of that, I think, is a tribute to the artifacts themselves. They're interesting physical artifacts that really tell a story in and of themselves, in addition to the game that you would use uh, you would use them to play. So we tried to get that. And we appreciate you saying that because we tried hard to sort of both tell the stories, but also have it really be thing you could enjoy looking at and pick up and read, put down again, pick up
0: again and read again. Yeah, this is just a great like Patrick and I were saying, just a great coffee table book. It's absolutely, I mean, you know, just it, it looks absolutely beautiful. When I got it in the mail, it's like, this is amazing. This is a good-looking book.
3: Yeah, and we and we wanted it to to be a great-looking book. We wanted it to sort of feel, you know, I like to think of it, it's almost a hybrid of a coffee table book um, and and something that you want to even spend a little bit more time with, um, you know. So it has beautiful photographs, um, you know, beautiful, really vibrant fo- uh, captures from the video games. Uh, you know, like I think of the one of uh, from Mortal Kombat with Kano holding, yeah. you know, the beating heart that he's ripped out of his yeah. opponent. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, that we're we're talking, you know, in depth about these different objects. Um, and, and trying to really pull together uh, this history of video games in a way that really hasn't been shown before, by actually looking at uh, some you know objects that uh, you know people just really haven't talked about before.
1: Yeah, because I've always followed. Like I'm a sports fan as well. I've always followed uh, history through sports championships. Who won the Super Bowl that year? Where was I living then? What age was I? You know, or through movies or mm. or presidents. The, you know, th- those kind of give you order to your past. But this book does that with video games. Like, I'm like, oh, 1980. Oh, okay. That's the year Magic Johnson joined the NBA and Pac Man came out. Like, now with this book, that that (laughs) helps me trace my own life and history. And uh, so it's kind of funny. It's like tracing history and technology and, and how these video games are a reflection of the time, but also they determine the culture of that time. So they're kind of both.
2: Right, and we, we try to do that, both tell the sort of history of video games as they relate to each other, but also, as you're alluding to, how they relate to the culture that's going on at the time. Like, for instance, 1980, a game like Missile Command is coming out, and it's related to this debate over nuclear weapons and nuclear war and fears of that that are going on at the same time. And so it's both the game, you can talk about it purely as a video game, you're defending your bases against these oncoming missiles, because, and you can, talk about, but you can also talk about the designer having nightmares uh, over the course of the year creating it, because R- Ronald Reagan is getting elected that year. There's a lot of debate about going on into, um, w- you know, should we have nuclear weapons positioned uh, in Europe later, shortly after there, or should we reduce the number of nuclear weapons? So there's this broader sociocultural context um, that is really, I think, interesting. Um, I'm more of a sel- I was more of a Celtics guy growing <laughs> up. Ah, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I remember when Larry Bird got into the <laughs> right, NBA.
1: Right. To... Rookie of the Year uh, goes to Bird. Year. Of the year, so yeah, yeah, okay. That's yeah. that's yeah. We'll put
0: it. it actually, brought this, this book brought a bad memory stream because every time I was looking at a new game, I was like, oh, I was out of work, living with my parents at that point. Uh, five years later, new game, I was out of work, living with my parents. I was like, so this book was very tearful and uh, depressing for me, guys. I mean, I tried to put a positive spin. What what what, what was the Because we understood by just reading and and looking at information about this book, this was a book that was like 10 years in the making, correct?
2: Right. It's really something that reflects we as a museum, uh, our efforts to collect and preserve and interpret the history of video games. And that's something that really started in around 1986 or, or so. We had the world's foremost collection of video games. Uh, you know, to uh, of game, uh, playthings in general—toys, dolls, games, jigsaw puzzles—and back then we had almost nothing dealing with 2006. Uh, yeah, as I say 1980 to 2006. Sorry, <laughs> 2006. Um, and um, that was we had nothing really to do with video games, even though video games have had this monumental effect on play. And so we said we need, really need to start collecting these and preserving them and keeping their history because. So we can tell the story of their impact on culture and society. So we began doing that in 2006. And lo and behold, we wake up, we have more than 50,000 of them. And and, uh, it's a really important collection. So this is a way to really bring that all together, this 10 years plus of work that really tells the story of how games have developed or video games have developed over time and what the impact is they're having on culture generally and also on people's lives.
1: Yeah, because I'm looking at uh, – when I started the book, I was like, oh, they're going to probably start with like Space Invaders and Asteroids. Those are games I remember as a really young kid. But that's not even close to the beginning. I mean, you go back to just after World War II. And and when I, I couldn't believe that pinball – is it true that pinball was not allowed in New York City until like 74 or 76 or something like that? With under- Yeah, there
3: were um- – yeah. You know, there were bans on pinball um, across the country, Chicago, which was the pinball capital of the world. You know, it's where pinball comes from. Pinball was banned there. I mean, it, it really had to do with, um, you know, concerns about gambling and, and we talk about this in the book, the, the idea of these moral panics, right. And yeah. and really where you, where you have concerns about uh, a form of media or, Um, Or a certain kind of folk devil, right, that you, uh, where where those concerns kind of override everything else. And um, it's something that we see uh, over and over. We we see it, you know, we saw it in the, you know, the the 19th century with uh, novels, right, that those are going to be the scourge of Western civilization, right? (laughs) Um, Dime novels, uh, popular novels, you see it, you know, with, with pinball, you see it with Dungeons and Dragons, right? Especially in the 1980s, um, you know, concerns that people were going out and actually acting out Dungeons and Dragons and killing each other, (laughs) Um, you know? And so video games, you know, and and this this history of video games really um, is just another example of uh, of that form of uh, of of these sort of mortal mortal panics um uh, but but pinball you know we we sort of started the the book with pinball in part because yes it's uh it's part of that that larger story uh but it's also we we wanted to get at too is that as you said you know you thought oh you know uh you know, maybe start with space invaders. But video games are coming from these different areas. One of the the wonderful things about our collection at the uh, at the Strong is that we can really tell this very long history of play, right? That video games actually come out of these completely different areas, right? That people working in the coin op industry who had created strength testers, and you know these these uh, you know uh, pinball machines are then part of an what will become an industry that was also built from people who are working in government labs you know or you know people in the toy industry you know so we're we're trying to bring all those things together in this book and and the objects really give us a way to you know to do that
0: and was that the idea for the title the 64 objects kind of based on the 100 objects that was kind of the parallel to the the book
2: Exactly. Yeah, that, uh, the history of the world and 100 objects. And uh, so we thought, let's do something similar to that with video games. It allows us them to tell these multiple stories, both about the games themselves, what's going on, on the screen, but also the physical object that you, uh, you interact with. And when we see people come to the museum, they're often reacting to the physical object. They, they have that moment where they see that um, game that they played back, and they remember exactly where they were when they played Tempest or something, you know, what bar it was, or the game that their their mom you wouldn't buy for them or something like <laughs> that, and so they really relate to that physical object as well as the actual play itself on the screen.
0: You know, it's interesting, because just going through the book, I mean, I just found so many just looking at some of these games, first visually, of all, yeah, visually yeah just alone. visually. Yeah, I mean, I know. think for yeah. me, you know, obviously we had a Pong machine, but like for me, the first, I think, game that I remember most was the Atari 2600. Is is that, what, what What was it for you guys? What was the first game that you guys look back and remember a lot of your childhood memories from?
2: Well, Gary, first of all, I'm about your age. I'm 48. <laughs> and it's sort of funny the Atari 2600, I obviously remember very strongly, Yeah. Uh, partly because um, my parents wouldn't buy me one. So I had to go to my best friend's house and, <laughs> and uh, waste hours there. And so I, I should attribute the fact that we have this collection of more than 50,000 games to the fact that my mother wouldn't buy me an Atari 2600. So um, that that's very strong w- with me. I definitely remember something that maybe it was not as common, but uh, a game called Zork, which we talk about in here. Which was something called a text-based adventure. So you're actually not even playing a video game in that sense. You're you're reading and and writing. And my brother, older brother, had played it at school and brought out printouts of the game. And so I was playing vicariously by um, like reading what he had done at, at, at that day at school and giving him advice and what he going to do? You know, you know, grab the sword or see if you can open the the, the jeweled egg or whatever. And that, for me, was a very common memory, but certainly things like I remember the first time seeing a home Pong version was very strong. Jeremy is a little bit younger, so he has different memories.
3: Yeah, yeah. so I was born in, in 1979, and, and one of the interesting things that we talk about in the book is, you know, we have this, um, this object that was uh, donated by the city of Alamogordo from the, you know, the excavation of the Atari wow. 2600 yeah. cartridges and... Uh, and consoles and everything that was dumped uh, in, um, you know, back in '83, and you know, during this whole video game crash. And you know, I've, I've said to JP before, you know, the video game crash was horrible for the video game industry, right? It was wonderful for me because, um, you know, growing up in a, a sort of working-class household, you know, I had mostly experienced video games as a little kid going into arcades, right? Into the coin-op, you're, you're, you know, 25 cents a, a play. But consoles and computers, you know, they they were, they were cost almost nothing. I remember my mother, you know, putting stuff on layaway at Kmart, right. you know, after the, the video game crash, you know, where consoles that were $200 were now, you know, $30, $40. And so I, got, I had the Atari 2600, but it was uh, after, you know, it had already sort of, uh hit the wall
0: <laughs> Yeah because when that first came out how much was it? How much did the Atari 2600 cost if you wanted to buy it brand new right out of the gate? Yeah, it's, it's, uh,
3: 250. It's, wow. It's, I, I wa- yeah. yeah, um it, it, yeah, it was right around 200 yeah. uh to, you know d- depending on uh where you're getting it, but you also had one of you know one of the big things was that um you know, sort of middle-class uh, middle rite of passage was, and, and maybe you guys had this experience as well, but the Sears catalog, right? Yeah. Um, that's where Home yeah. Pong was introduced to Americans, uh, and that's where a lot of people were introduced to um, Atari's 2600 console, and, and Sears would have the telegames um, label. And so often that was the, you, you know, you'd, you'd get that Sears wish book, and flip through the pages and be like, oh man, I want Pitfall. That game looks right. great. Oh, I, you know, I want to play this. Um, but then you see the price tag, and you're like, okay, this is just encircling it as an aspirational gift. Maybe Santa will bring that for me. But um, you know, it, so yeah. I mean, the the, the cost was certainly. Uh, it was certainly big in, in my case.
0: I remember as a kid, uh, Patrick, I don't know if you remember this, you'd go into Toys R Us and they would have the picture of the game that under it they'd have like little leaflets if the game was available. Yeah. And then yeah. you'd pay for it and then you'd pick it up behind the glass window. Sure. And I just remember not having the money. So what I would do is I would take the leaflet and hide it in the store. And then come back and get it at some point, but but not really realizing that it, you know it's it, like that's not the be all end all. Yeah. I mean, somebody could just still go up to the window and be like, "You guys have it." We see it sitting back there, <laughs> and that's what we would do. And I remember, I remember the game that really changed the Atari for me was Miss Pac Man because that was a game that looked amazing for. A system that was that cheap, it looked absolutely
1: incredible. And and if I could jump in, why like you go around to bars, restaurants, little places, I see Miss Pac-Man. I don't see Pac-Man so much in places, but I see Miss Pac-Man every. Is it just it's more aesthetically? Me too, movement. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's why. (laughs) But, but, But why is that? Is that is is that part of like the shift that took place when all these games were kind of space and and violent and war? that in 1980 they needed a game kind of that was softer, kind of that was for girls, and that's why Pac-Man came about and then Miss Pac-Man, an even more effeminate version. Is that is that why we see more of that than the regular Pac-Man?
2: I think part of it is that it, it's actually a better game, Miss Pac-Man. Okay. I mean, if you remember, if you've played it, you remember the, the, the mazes change, the fruit sort of bounces around, and the ghosts are a little bit more random that they're, they're not as predictable. So it's a slightly better game. But I think you're exactly right. It was intentionally trying to reach a broader audience to say, hey, we've had some success with women playing playing Pac-Man, and what if we make it into Ms. Pac-Man? And and there's a whole history, too, of the Ms. versus the Mrs. and Miss. And again, one of the things that that tells you about the signifies what was going on at the time. So Ms. Pac-Man is objectively a better game than the original Pac-Man, And also, it intentionally was reaching out for a broader audience. So that perhaps explains why you still see it around a little bit more than just the original Pac-Man.
0: It's funny. You guys touched on E.T., the uh, the video game. Uh, About a year ago, we had on Howard Warshaw, who developed that game. He came on our show, and not only did he come out with that game, but then he also had Yars' Revenge, which was uh, one of the best games on Atari.
2: Right. and the thing about E.T. is E.T. gets a little bit of a bad rap. In Which terms is in your of, book. Yeah.
0: yeah, We, yeah, all, so. we, we,
2: we need a villain and anyone, especially if they're in the industry at the time. They they needed someone to blame. But if you look at the constraints that he worked on, and he probably talked about this when he was on your show, I mean, he had how many weeks did he have to make that? Very you know, few. Some ridiculous yeah. amount of time. And this is a time when one person is pretty much doing everything for a game. And the other thing is, that I think it was like six weeks or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: it was. It was five or six weeks. The other yeah. thing
2: is that ET's, if you're picking movies to make games <laughs> out of, <laughs> ET is not the game um, that you, not the movie you want to pick. I think he'd earlier done The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, that's, that's the yeah. movie you want to make a video game out of. Uh, not ET. I mean, it, it, it's sort of hard to convey that, especially with the limitations of the, of the Atari 2600. Well, so what... it was a game, game made in a very short amount of time. With maybe not the best subject matter.
1: Well, and we remember all of us hopefully. Maybe uh, Speak and Spell was in the movie ET. Yeah. So does then the video game ET also include a Speak and Spell scene? You know what I'm saying? It like it all overlaps and your mind's blown here. Um, but it, but it was interesting that ET doesn't really make it as a video game. Pac Man doesn't really make it as a TV show. Remember they had a cartoon. Yeah. or Something for two seasons. Or I remember yeah. that.
0: Sure. Yeah, there's I mean, if we just like looking through the book, you guys, I mean, like the Mattel football, I mean, come on, like, that. you know, that was a game that you could be occupied for hours with on a road trip, just sitting at home. In my parents' basement, unemployed. I mean, all of that stuff. Like in seventy you know, right? seven. In seventy seven, yeah, you're, I should have been working. Should have had a dishwashing job. You. I know. Uh, I mean that that game, that game, that game was revolutionary. It's it's you know it, it, you had that game and even the simpler game that moved forward years after that. The uh, you know the Tecmo Bowl with you know Bo Jackson and you oh know, yeah the, that was incredible such you a great game him. you couldn't stop couldn't stop Bo, that yeah. guy well
1: well that's what the beauty of two of Madden was in ninety was it brings nerds, it brings, uh, not nerds, uh, the opposite, it brings jocks into kind of this realm. All of a sudden, they're games, right. you know? And uh, and it was funny, being uh, in Arizona with my family this weekend, reading this book, and my brother, who's a big-time basketball player, he's like, what are you doing? What, what's this video game thing? And by the end of the weekend, of course, he's looking at the book. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, 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 this, yeah. it just
0: <laughs> well, well, look at, like, Simon. Yeah.
1: Like, you, if you look at that game,
0: guys, it's like, you look at that game, it's so simplistic, but yet so much fun, right?
2: Right. And that's, I think, you know, as you guys alluded to, the broadening of the, of the audience for video games, I think is a key part of the story. You know, now with mobile phones, everyone has a game in their pocket, perhaps somewhere, and it could be anywhere from um, a very, very complex game to Words with Friends or um, Bejeweled or, or, or a casual game. And when you look at the history of games, you see this expansion. And sometimes it's because the price point is driven down, like you mentioned the Mattel football. It, you know that was something they could start selling because the chips got cheap enough to sell it as a toy. And so, and I remember playing that. I put a lot of heavy research in when writing the book, and going back and playing that again for hours, <laughs> and, and then. it's actually still sort of fun in this weird, simplistic, compelling way. Or something like, uh, as you were saying, Patrick, about Madden. Really, all of a sudden now you're the cool kid who's playing. Has you know, just as much fun playing a Madden um, or an NHL game or something like that, as the kid who maybe had access to a personal computer or something like that before. So you're really constantly expanding the audience with games over time.
1: Yeah, I would love to see John Madden being pitched a video game idea in his right. name. Just like, huh, what? Like, I, doesn't you know, I just...
0: <laughs> well, By the way, what was – guys, what was the transition in terms of like going from – because Patrick and I were talking about this before we got on the air, the, the transition from Atari to Intellivision because I remember some of the kids having that in the neighborhood. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you – you can control all the players on the field for this baseball game? Like, that was pretty crazy because you guys talk about utopia, you know, for Intellivision. But, you know, what was that transition like when Intellivision came out?
3: Well, so you you kind of think of that as being the first first kind of console war. Uh, In the industry, they talk about the console wars, um, and it's often discussed in relation to the uh, you know, Sega and Nintendo later on. But really if you go back and look at Atari, they had a you know a pretty um, you know pretty good machine. They had a massive marketing uh, budget. They'd saturated the you know the the market. Um, but Mattel actually had a, um, a a superior product in terms of its graphic capabilities um, and you know in, in many of the games. And I think it, when you look at that one, uh, that relationship, it foreshadows what you see later, and this idea of of uh, where home console makers are sort of constantly going back and forth uh, in how they sell their games as being this is more realistic, the graphics are better, right? Now you can see the now you can see the blood. Now you can (laughs) see you know player. Now you can control the players smashing into each other, um, and not really necessarily talking about like we did with Utopia in television, a really innovative game, right? This almost kind of god mode of managing, um, you know, uh, these these sort of civilizations, which is far different than than saying, hey, you know, we've got the most realistic simulation of a race car game you know feels like you're in the you know you're on the track Um, I think it foreshadows a lot of that happening though
0: yeah there's just so many I mean like just looking at this just you know just bringing back so many memories because I remember like even in 85 that was the big that was the switch right when the Nintendo console came out Mm -hmm. like people were flocking to that regardless of the price I remember I was sitting in my parents basement um <laughs> unemployed yeah, again, that, yeah. waiting for that game so you're you're 15 then you've a lot of time in your where do you think we're broadcasting this from guys uh but yeah it was just like that was that was the turning point because what was crazy remember that one came with donkey kong like that
1: that, that mario system, brothers came out that year yeah you're right yeah. yes
0: didn't yeah. that one come with donkey kong to come out with mario brothers came out with well the, what was the free game it, that was included it, it, it.
3: Super well, so it it ended up getting packed with Super Mario Brothers, oh, yes. and then yep, there was a Super right. Mario Brothers Duck Hunt, um, kind of on the same cartridge.
2: Correct. Yeah, and Don- and Donkey Kong had come out with the CLECO vision, or, or had a, a good
3: port
0: uh, of it. I yeah.
2: had a really good the CLECO vision, which was uh, then the third ones so that Atari and Television the CLECO vision had the best arcade quality games, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> including Donkey Kong. But yeah, with the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. That really brought it to a new level and revived interest in console gaming for a new generation. And what year was ColecoVision?
3: That's also I want to say like eighty-two. Yeah, eighty-two, around eighty-two, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And you, 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 so eighty-two is a kind of this high water mark because you've got the Atar, you know, you've got the Atari twenty-six hundred because Atari actually rebrands their. Uh, video computer system, the 2600, you've got the Intellivision, you've got ColecoVision, right? So Coleco was a toy company they're getting in with, uh, just like Mattel, Um, the Vectrex, which was, if you guys remember the, um, you know, Asteroids and Lunar Lander and those other vector graphic games, um, you could play games like that on the Vectrex. So 82 was this big year, you know, a lot of that, a lot of these, um, you know, consoles were out and then the market you know, crashes, and it's really not until you have Nintendo kind of come into the market uh, with a with something that just felt very different than what had come before it in '85, and it really took to '86, '87 before it was you know nationwide. Every it was the hottest toy; everybody had to have a uh, an NES.
1: Well, I, this book also the little tidbits like uh, like for example, Zelda is named after F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. Uh, Like, little things like that. That that blew my mind. I was like, I had to go back on Google and look at that. And then the surveys in the 90s that kids recognized Mario more than Mickey Mouse by the 90s. Did they really? Yeah, 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 isn't that... Like, that's how quick that had... I mean, Donkey Kong comes out in 81. By by mid-80s, kids are like, oh, yeah, that's more recognizable than Mickey Mouse. It's just... And that's that's what this book has, as well as everything else. And then
0: again, I remember when when uh, the Sega Genesis came out, in 1991, Sonic the Hedgehog. I yeah. mean, absolutely one of my favorite things to do when you know watch it or playing this, you could plug your earphones in, and you could play the yeah. game, and it was like just in stereo that you could play this game. It, it was that was an amazing system in
1: '91. Uh, and then, um, I, if I could just ask you guys, the uh, what was so interesting was how space space invaders. When was that even by design that that as you killed more of the space invaders, that it became faster because it freed up space, and they just kind of kept that feature in the game, and it ended up working in their in their benefit, the designers' benefit, and it increased uh, the excitement of the game. And that was just uh, that was totally by circumstance, not by design.
3: Right, yeah, it was unintentional. And then in really going, you know, sort of playing through it, um, sometimes things like that happen, right? There, you, you have these, you know, there's a history of innovation, history of invention where things happen by accident in some ways. And you think of the frenzied pace of Space Invaders and the way that, I mean, you, it's a great example of a game that you did not, I mean, you could not beat Space Invaders. <laughs> You were just playing as long as you could possibly yeah. play and trying to get that your score on that you know on that screen you know to 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 beat the last guy, it, it, but um, but yeah, completely not by design.
0: I mean, I got to tell you, you guys cover everything in this book from Pokemon, Grand Theft Auto, the Wii. Uh, I, I, I was going to ask:
1: Is there any way the movie War Games is going to make the strong oh. Hall of Fame? Just the movie. It's I don't know if it's only video <laughs> games. And just a movie. Just a
2: movie. Maybe if Matthew Broderick comes out for, oh, cool. uh, for a visit, cool. we, can, we can induct it. That's actually War Games, which growing up was one of my favorite movies. Yeah. But this whole element of, of, of how video games are the way that kids, digital natives, and they, um, it, it's an opportunity for people to learn about computers to just really get an intimate knowledge about it. And the whole idea of hacking, which is, you remember from the movie War Games, oh, yeah. is really key to this, is at the core of a lot of game development, game design, people get a game and they start to fool with it. Or and you see it now, especially, but something like a game like Doom, for instance, really put some of those tools in the hands of people and said, hey, play with this game a little bit. And that idea of creating content for players is really key. But video games have this really important role in the history of technology. It's one reason why kids are always better than their parents at the the technology, because they're just playing with it. They're fooling around with it. And I think War Games is a good example of that. He goes from playing in the arcade to, you know, hacking the intercontinental ballistic missile defense system. Yeah, it's one short leap, and that's yeah. the problem with video yeah. games. Just, Here's you know,
3: a
0: little trivia question play for
2: you. Okay, pretty soon, pretty soon we're bringing new. A little, a little <laughs> trivia, <laughs> trivia
0: question for you guys. What was the password that uh, Matthew Broderick stole from the principal's office in order for him to change his grade? Do you remember the password that? Oh. that there was a bunch, and they were all crossed he, off, and then yeah, and he, there was the it, final one.
2: It, 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 is, I remember he opens like the drawer, yep. and they're
0: crossed out. Yep. And is it pencil? Yep. It pencil? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was pencil. We've got is a winner. It, is that it? Did it's pencil. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yep. And he changed Look. his biology grade, so he didn't have to go to summer school. That's right. Yeah. Ali
1: Sheedy thinks is this? Yeah. Doing like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's so funny that they would just leave yeah. that out in the open. It, it, it's so, it's so great. It, yeah. It's so random. Yeah. yeah. But I, it, it, just so, so crazy. Uh, I, I, I know that, but I, I can't remember my wife's birthday. But right. gonna, you got to remember the important <laughs> things.
3: Uh, I'm completely shocked that JP pulled that out of his butt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they still they still air that because movie. Of the two of us, I have probably I've probably seen more movies in the last year than he's seen his entire life. Uh, um, but he pulled pencil out of them.
1: <laughs> you know, it's 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 so well, funny. It caught him at an impressionable age. That, that yeah. movie, so that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Oh, exactly. Well, I remember being
0: inspired to try to hack my high school's computer to try to change our. Change the grades or change the schedule. I don't think we we're ever as successful <laughs> right. as uh. There, as there's, Matthew Broderick was. there's a thing here in LA called the Hollywood Show, and it's every four or five months at a hotel near the airport, and they bring back, you know, a lot of celebrities from the eighties and the nineties, and they brought back the guy he was sitting there at a booth signing autographs. He was the guy from War Games, sure. the nerdy guy. Oh, oh, the
1: guy. He was in Greece as well. Yes. Yeah. What was it? Eugene, uh, Eugene. Eugene. In Greece, yes. But Mr. Yeah.
0: potato head. Mr. Potato. Head, and actually, and yeah. you knew his voice immediately. <laughs> you knew his voice. It was just absolutely crazy to see him sitting there in person. Um. And by the way, guys, if, if 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 people come out to Rochester to come see the video game museum, tell us what that's like, and you know the the information about the video game museum as well.
2: Sure. So, it's part of the Strong National Museum of Play with the world's largest play collection, as I mentioned earlier. Toys, dolls, games, video games. It's a huge uh, place, about 285,000 square feet, and um, really super interactive, but also telling the history of different things. So, everything from um, a whole arcade, but also the timeline of history of video games there there's you know the prototype for Monopoly. So it's not just oh, wow. uh, video games, it's also board games and Thomas Edison's Talking Doll, but very interactive as well. Um, and in fact, a few years ago, Family Fun Magazine named it the number one family destination in the United States. Um, so it's, if you're anywhere near Rochester, so that could be if you're going to Niagara Falls, if you're going to Toronto, going to Finger Lakes region, or New York City, if you want to start, drive up. It's really, it's a great place that, we get about a little more than 550,000 people every year. So, again, it's a huge place and a lot of fun for the whole family, which is sort of a neat thing because there'll be stuff for dad, there'll be stuff for mom, stuff for the kids, stuff for the grandkids. It's one of the few places when you're on vacation somewhere where everyone is happy when they, <laughs> when they
0: come. Right.
3: Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, on top of the, the, the World Video Game Hall of Fame being here, we also have the National Toy Hall of Fame, Um, which, um, you know, inducts new, uh, new toys every year as well. Um, And, uh, and there's also for, for those who are inclined to do research, we have a scholarly library here as well. So we're really a a dynamic institution. There's exhibits for people to come and experience and learn about the history um, uh, of play, but also very much interact and, and actually play. That's, that's what we want people to do. Are if, you guys... If you go
0: to... Go ahead. Are, are you guys...
3: Google <laughs> Arts and Culture has, a, has an online tour. If you
2: just go strong, National Museum of Play, Google, Google Arts and Culture, you can do a virtual tour of the museum, but I can tell you it's a lot less fun than going <laughs> yeah. and playing in the superheroes <laughs> yeah. exhibit or
0: or that sort of thing. And are you guys the founders of the museum? I mean, are you guys running it? Is that is that your baby right there?
2: No, no, we're not the founders. Um, we're... We, the museum itself has been open since 1982, though it wasn't always about play. That's a longer story. Uh, I'm This is JP. I'm vice president for exhibits and, and in charge of uh, our director of our International Center for the History of Electronic Games, which is sort of our umbrella group for the, for video games. And Jeremy, um, really, I mean, you can...
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, our assistant vice president for interpretation and electronic games. I also edit our American Journal of Play, which is a scholarly... Um, peer-reviewed, you know, journal that we publish with, um, you know, three times a year. So that's sort of our academic side of things.
0: Well, I got to tell you, we're all around the same age. And uh, after talking to you guys, I, I certainly couldn't feel like a bigger loser. Uh, I mean, you guys, PhDs, yeah, running yeah. eighty things, have a yeah. book out, and uh, Patrick and I are going to try to scrounge up enough money to get a uh, Little Caesars hot and ready. But well, uh, you know, you know what's funny here is-, is the guy—the guy
1: that formed uh, the guy Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari, also yeah. found Chuck E. Cheese. I know, which is not equal, equally right. just as yeah. great. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. So yeah. we can do Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you something we didn't mention is the role of marijuana played in the video game. Oh launch, yes, so that's, yeah, that's really helped. I think. Yeah. The video
0: game cause. Yeah. Well, we're high right now, <laughs> so I mean, and we're not, you know, Perfect. even playing a video. Game, I got, gentlemen. First of all, I know that it took a, a lot of work on the publisher's end to get both of you guys together, and I can't say thank you guys enough. It was well worth the wait, getting a chance to chat with you guys about this amazing book. I can't wait. You know, Patrick and I travel a lot on the road doing stand up, and we definitely want to make it out there to visit this museum, meet you guys in person. That would be a a bucket list item for me. That would I would absolutely love that.
2: Yeah, well, we definitely would love to have you. If you come out, let us know. We'll give you a behind-the-scenes tour. If you go to some of the, the stuff that's on display is amazing, but then equally great is the the storage rooms, which remember that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they are, oh, yeah. they're storing the Ark of the Covenant? Oh. Imagine a scene like that, going to a room like that, except it's full of... Arcade games and pinball and <laughs> yeah, board geez. games and, and everything else uh, from your childhood and then going back hundreds of years. Just so as important it's a as the arts. place and for us, obviously a lot of fun to work at a place like this.
0: Do people still put quarters up on the uh, little uh, uh, top Display? there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they know that their game is next. Is that how people still do it at the at the uh, the museum?
2: Yeah, when we first opened the arcade area, we definitely saw some of those old muscle memory yeah. habits come back. Uh. And people would sort of reserve things. <laughs> One of the reasons why we it's twenty cents a play for, for, each, for each token, but we don't put them on free play because we find otherwise, you know, some guy hogs it, and the you know twelve year old next <laughs> him is trying yeah, to get, the, get in the game. And instead. Uh, so he has to learn to put the token up so he can get the next game in there.
0: So. Yeah, I will tell you, having that full-size arcade game in my house is definitely a conversation piece. People are like, oh, we didn't know you were out of work. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, that we have certainly. <laughs> um, that's the truth. Uh, I, I got to tell you guys, I love, love, love the book. It is absolutely amazing. Covers so much information. Just it looks absolutely beautiful. This is a great book, not only for any video game lover, but for somebody who just wants to visit their past, and like Patrick was saying, remember where you were at a certain point in your life, and it, it's, it, it covers it all, and uh, I gotta tell you, this was, you know, we get a lot of books sent to us, this was one of the most excited times when I got this book just to look through it and I I still pick it up all the time and just kind of peruse and just look back and remember certain things in my life of where I was back in 82, 93. It's, 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 it's an amazing book. It's called the history of video games in 64 objects, the world video game hall of fame. I want to thank our guests. I can't wait to get out there on the East coast to meet you guys. Come check out the museum. John Paul, J.P. Dyson, and Jeremy Saucier. Uh, you guys were absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for making a call into our show. And we hope that this book is a huge success for you guys.
2: Thank you guys so much. It's a real honor to be on with you. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And we will put a link up on our podcast to this amazing book for people and our listeners that uh, that want to check it out. But uh, I can't thank you guys enough. And we look forward to meet you guys in person at some point sooner than later. But thank you guys for coming onto our show and releasing a a, a great book that I know a lot of people are going to love. Thank you. Uh, How about another round of applause right there? Yeah, thank you guys so much for calling in. Those guys were (laughs) absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. What a great book. Uh, JP, Jeremy right there, calling into the Gentleman's Dojo, a history of video games in 64 objects. Our listeners should check this book out. Absolutely amazing. We loved it. Loved it.
1: You agree with me, Patrick? No, I do. And, and <laughs> well, the thing is, too, the video games that I didn't play over the years that I'm st- I'm looking through the pages and uh, towards the end there because I haven't, you know, I've been away from them for a few years. Of course, from with me in adulthood, and some of the new stuff, and I don't know. You're just weirdly like, um, ah, because you're reading through it, and there's hundreds of video games, and you're like, okay, I've I've read enough. I've read enough. I don't, and then you're like, ah, I can do one more. You know, I can do one more. I sure. Look at this, and you know, each game, it, it's like we were talking about before. The back and forth, you know, there, there's a bunch of video games that come out about war and space aliens and killing and death. And then there's a shift, you know, and you have Donkey Kong and Pac-Man. And then there's a shift and another need for more destruction and war and death. And then and then we're back to love and Pokemon and stuff. So uh, it's, it's all about balance, yo. It's. <laughs> <laughs> this is the... Uh, for an extra life, yeah.
0: I don't know what this song is. I just pulled up Donkey Kong song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh Patrick Keane, Gary Cannon. I want to thank our guests for calling into our show today. They were absolutely awesome. JP Dyson, Jeremy Saucier, two PhDs, A History of Video Games and 64 Objects, The World of Video Games Hall of Fame. Go check out the Hall of Fame Museum in Rochester. If you're out there. And also check out this amazing book. Uh, Gary Cannon, Patrick Keen, thank you for listening to the Gentleman's Dojo here on All Things Comedy. Yeah. We'll see you guys again soon. Bye-bye. Time,
1: time, time, time.